Hello. Can you guys hear me? Uh, good evening, everyone. I am Julia Turner. I'm the editor-in-chief of Slate. Uh, thank you so much for being with us here with us tonight for the People versus Trump year one. Uh, it is 7.30-ish p.m. on November 8th, 2017, which means that exactly one year ago at this time, we were all enjoying the last few hours of life in a world that felt very different than the world we live in now, uh, a world where it seemed obvious, at least to me, that a man whose campaign courted white supremacists and who bragged on mic about sexual assault would not become president, and a world where it seemed likely that finally a woman would. It may seem odd to convene tonight to celebrate what Michelle Goldberg this week called in her New York Times column, the anniversary of the apocalypse. <laughs> but we began planning this event a few months ago for one reason. We didn't want to spend that anniversary alone. Uh, and we thought that maybe some of you would not want to be alone either. Uh, in some ways, that's a very simple idea. It's better to be sad with friends than by yourself. Uh, but there's also, I think, a larger impulse uh, there that's worth thinking about. For me, I know, and I, I think for many others, Donald Trump's election victory provoked profound feelings of alienation and estrangement. I was left feeling that I didn't know my country, didn't know my fellow citizens, didn't really know who journalism was for, didn't know what being a woman really meant. It was disorienting, it was isolating, it was lonely. But Trump's victory was also instantly galvanizing for me and for every journalist who works at Slate. We saw that night, the next morning immediately, the opportunity to use the tools at hand to illuminate the world as it changed for a group of people, including you all, who cared deeply about that change. And so we got to work covering Trump's reign with a particular focus on his ongoing battle with the rule of law in America, which you'll be hearing some about tonight, uh, and also on how his administration is affecting the many, many groups of people he has maligned on his way into office and since, and we'll be hearing about that tonight too. And working together with my colleagues to shed light on those changes felt a little bit less lonely. We, thankfully, we're not the only ones galvanized. So many of the stories that we've covered this year have highlighted people doing extraordinary work to combat Trump's worst ideas and impulses, his immigration ban, his attempts to repeal Obamacare, his refusal to disavow white supremacists, his penchant for conducting nuclear diplomacy on Twitter. Some of these figures are lawyers, organizers, activists, politicians, and journalists like the ones joining us tonight. Some of those are the people who called their congressmen or wrote letters or came out in droves to protest whether at the Women's March or staring down a sad handful of neo-Nazis at the massive counter-protest in Boston. Some of those are the people bravely running for office for the first time, and some of them, as we saw last night, are people who vote. Yeah. The election results yesterday give this evening a slightly different tenor, I think, than the one that we were anticipating when we planned the night. Uh, the scope of the Democratic victories last night was astonishing, uh, you know, to me as a journalist, to some of the people you're about to hear from who are much more closely engaged with the process than I was. Um, and it's a testament, I think, to the fact that opposing Trump and what he stands for is actually not a lonely position at all. 
Uh, we're extraordinarily lucky tonight to be hearing from five people who've been leading these legions, uh, working hard this past year to preserve what's good about American democracy and to fix what's not. We'll hear more tonight about what's been working and what we have yet to figure out. Before we start, I have a few housekeeping notes. We have five journalists interviewing five terrific subjects tonight, but in the interest of moving things along, I'm going to let each interviewer introduce him or herself and then his or her subject. Um, and we're also going to use the hashtag PeopleVTrump if any of you want to tweet along as, as people discuss. Also, when we are done, we are going to try and experiment and all head to Art Bar over on 8th Avenue. There are 400 odd people in this room. Maybe you'll all come and we'll see what happens. But anyway, you're most welcome. We'll be continuing the conversation there. Uh, and first up is our chief political correspondent, Jamel Bowie. Didn't expect these chairs to be. No, this is a little bit exciting. Um, I'm Jamel Bowie, uh, Slate's chief political correspondent, and I'm here with Tom Periello. Uh, I'm not sure I need to introduce Tom, but uh, for the sake of the recording, I will. Uh, Tom uh, is a native of Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, Tom served uh, in the House of Representatives, served uh, the 5th District. Uh, unfortunately, wasn't able to win re-election in 2010. Uh, but went on to do really important conflict resolution work in Central Africa, um, ran for governor this past year, and uh, after he wasn't able to win the nomination, went on to campaign real hard for Democrats in the state. Um, and so we... We are going to talk about that election, that race. Um, two, uh, two Virginians uh, hashing it out. So, um, let's get started. Tom, were you surprised? I mean, I know you've been working incredibly hard uh, these past few months, crisscrossing the state on behalf of not just, uh, uh, you know, incoming Governor Northam, but House of Delegates candidates. But I have to imagine that the results kind of surpassed your expectations. Um, well, they're certainly at the outer limit of our expectations. We really were hopeful this year uh, for a number of reasons, and we felt like Virginia was going to be the test case of whether we can turn resistance energy into political power at the ballot box. Um, and last night we proved that, in fact, we can do that. Uh, last night wasn't just an election win. It was an inflection point. Uh, I think on this question about whether we are going to be able to look back 10 years from now and see Trump's election as the anomaly, uh, the last gasp of a dying uh, racist ideology, um, or the new normal, that's the, the battle we're in right now. Uh, Northam Herring and Fairfax ran incredible statewide races. They deserve a huge amount of credit. Virginia's in great hands. But we also had all these candidates right. step up for the House of Delegates in areas that hadn't seen a Democrat run in 20 years, uh, in some cases that hadn't come within 20 points and won last night. We broke so many glass ceilings. Uh, the first Latina elected to the House of Delegates and the second Latina uh, elected <laughs> to the House of Delegates. Uh, Hala Yala, Elizabeth Guzman, incredible stories, all Danica Rome, the first trans uh, legislator. Uh, <laughs> Justin Fairfax, an amazing leader as lieutenant governor, only the second uh, African-American elected statewide in the history of Virginia. 
and this was just, I mean, it was, it was a convergence of a lot of things. Um, but I was really proud. Virginia, you know, was the birthplace of American democracy, but also the birthplace of American slavery. So we've always been both at the forefront of justice and liberty for all, uh, but also at the forefront of some of the worst, um, uh, of America's past. And in each generation, we just decide which one of those lead. And more than anything else, I think yesterday was an, inc- was a referendum on an inclusive Virginia right. and an inclusive Virginia one and one big yesterday so (laughs) so what kind of lessons do you think that activists democrats just people interested people in other places can take from this i mean one thing um that was striking to me about last night's results was just how black turnout um was at what it was in 2016 latino turnout was at what it was at 2016 and trying to crack that nut has been really uh, a really difficult question for democrats around the country so what 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 happened on the ground to sort of help produce these kind of results it wasn't i mean it wasn't just energy yeah so first i should caveat this by noting i haven't slept in a really long time. <laughs> uh, so, look, I think in a, in a broader sense, Donald Trump is to America what Prop 187 was to California. Uh, so for those who don't know, under Governor Wilson in California, they ran a, an immigrant bashing initiative back in the 90s, um, and it got them one big election win, but cost the Republicans the state for a generation. And the hope is that's what's happening with uh, Trump's uh, racially divisive politics, uh, along with his incompetence, um, is... Uh, <laughs> And I think you see how Virginia's changed from when uh, I was growing up. I'm a little older than you. Uh, you're Tidewater. I'm Central. But, you know, growing up, Virginia was 20% African-American, 80% white. Now it's 20% African-American, 60% white, 20% everyone else, the new Virginia majority. And I think what you're seeing is groups turn out and be politicized in state elections in a way they haven't been in the past. Democrats and progressives have been talking for 10 years about the idea that we need to take local and state more seriously, but we haven't backed that up with action. I think it was actually organic from the grassroots up. The number of candidates uh, this time uh, for House of Delegates who organized their local women's march and then in the process became a candidate uh, and ran incredible races. You know, we had over 50 challengers, over half of them were women, about a quarter millennials, candidates of color. So one lesson is Democrats need to contest every seat in every zip code. Um, And I think Tom Perez is really committed to that at the DNC. It helps to run diverse and dynamic candidates um, who help term. There was really a lot of organizing delegate uh, by delegate. And people stood for bold principles. Um, You know, you could have seen the old triangulation politics of, you know, sort of playing a little loose with uh, some of the racially divisive stuff. Uh, Northam took a strong stand on Confederate monuments, a strong stand on criminal justice reform, a strong position on uh, voter restoration uh, against the travel ban and other positions. So I think you're seeing a willingness to fight for strong progressive principles and do so uh, from the top of the ballot to the bottom. This, you know, this gets to something we've talked about before, and that is you really believe in confronting racism and bigotry head on, not sort of avoiding it, not trying to change a subject, but really confronting it head on. Um, and not, not looking back at this election, but, but looking forward, Virginia does still have to have this conversation about our past, um, about these monuments. And so what, you know, how do you think that should unfold? How do you think that in, in light of these results, Virginians of goodwill should think about um, confronting this stuff head on? And obviously this has lessons for everyone. 
You know, uh, there's no easy solution, but um, I was really encouraged. Uh, my thought was that the Confederate monuments were going to be like gay marriage, something that actually worked for the Republicans for one or two election cycles, and then the arc of history moved and people looked back and saw it differently. Um, but Ed Gillespie went all in yeah. on uh, the race baiting in this campaign. I mean, he would have made Jesse Helms blush. It was incredible <laughs> to see. I was, you know, helping all these delegates. So I was traveling around the state you know, 24-7, every single radio ad was either the fear of Latino gangs or the celebration of Confederate monuments. Um, and it was curious how that was going to play. Um, but I think while people's views on the monuments themselves are mixed, their sense of being wise enough to see that this was a cultural wedge issue because Gillespie didn't have an economic message came through. And I think that's one of the stories, the probably second week stories we'll see. Gillespie tried to run a traditional Republican economic messaging campaign for about six or eight weeks, and nobody was buying it. People said that's what we tried under George W. Bush, the big corporate tax cuts. All the things that Congress is trying to do right now was not only rejected by independent, moderate voters, but even their own base wasn't buying it, which is part of why Gillespie then went all in on the uh, cultural division. So you know the Republicans really have become the identity politics party. It's really their only card left because nobody likes their corporate economic agenda. The Democrats, meanwhile, have become the party of inclusion, um, and you're seeing bolder economic moves like debt-free community college that was widely run on as well as Medicaid expansion this time. So, you know, I think we have to have these conversations. I think it's better, you know, I've proposed a South African-style truth commission for Virginia because I think when it's reactive to any individual situation, it's not as constructive as when we try to find a way to bring methodology to that. Um, but uh, I think the important thing is we know that if we thought we could just avoid these conversations, Charlottesville was certainly one of the indicators uh, on August 12th that that's right. not an option. So one thing about those Gillespie ads is that although they definitely alienated uh, Virginians in the north of the state and Tidewater and, and throughout, in the western parts of the state, they actually did seem to help Gillespie meet his margins. They did. They actually seemed to work. Um, and I know that as part of your campaign for the Democratic nomination, you spent a lot of time out in western Virginia, um, especially hitting on environmental issues. And I'd be curious to know what what you think Democrats should do about that problem, about trying to reach out to voters who respond to things like, you know, football players are not going to, they're not going to kneel anymore, um, but also have these concerns about uh, environmental degradation, about economic inequality. How does, how does one square that circle? You know, I think the politics of a lot of Virginia and a lot of the country right now are not right versus left. They're bold versus boring. Um, I think that many people in the rural and small town parts of Virginia feel like they've been left behind because they have been. Uh, if you look at the economic recovery of the Clinton era, about 70% of new businesses were created in small and medium-sized towns. In this most recent economic recovery, it was 0% in small towns and only 17% in medium-sized towns. Uh, we have seen life expectancies drop in those areas. Three Virginians die every day of the opioid uh, epidemic. But the responses that I got uh, the, the reason I was able to do well in those areas, even in a primary, uh, we stood strongly against monopolies uh, for relocalizing um, you know, food, beverage, and energy production, standing against the pipelines and other things. So they were positions that the, the chattering class sees as more left, but were actually much more popular with libertarians and conservatives in rural areas. Um, similar thing that shifted, you and I have talked about it, people want addiction to be treated as a public health crisis and not a criminal crisis. The conversation has changed dramatically in rural and small town Virginia. Um, the, their legislators hadn't caught up to that. 
because they're still stuck in the 90s lock them up mindset. Now, is it a shame that that conversation's only changing now that it's hitting whiter communities? Yes. But are we going to not take this as a moment to bring people together to bring some common sense uh, criminal justice reform through? Absolutely, we should do that. And so I think the changing politics of Virginia don't fit neatly into right or left. We're actually 10 or 12 different political tribes that get thrown into a false binary of Democrats and Republicans. But um, we have to confront that we're not going to agree on every issue and we shouldn't. There are certain things we just can't compromise on. I mean, one, one heartening thing I think I took away from last night was that Justin Fairfax actually did pretty well, all things considered, in that part of the state. And he did run very much on opposing the pipeline. Um, there's a really awful uh, uh, natural gas pipeline trying to be built through uh, rural communities in Virginia. Uh, it sucks. Um, but Fair, Fairfax ran, uh, spoke quite a bit about that, and it seemed to have helped his margins out there. So it, it does it does feel, I mean, he didn't win, but it does win that region. But it does feel like there is a, a path there. Yeah, I think, you know, definitely uh, one, two of the things that I think are going to going to become dominant topics in the economic in the debate over the next 10 years are automation and monopoly. Um, if you actually look, uh, the biggest killer of coal jobs in America over the last generation uh, has been technology, followed by natural gas. Of course, EPA and all the stuff they like to focus on is not there. And when I go out and spend time in Trump country and I say, look, you know, Trump was right. We lost 5.7 million manufacturing jobs. Can anyone tell me where 85% of those jobs went? Every hand goes up and says automation. This isn't hypothetical. This isn't forward-looking. For many hard-hit communities, this has already been the reality, and it makes NAFTA and globalization look like child's play. Um, and one of the things is we don't have to have a policy solution to everything. I mean, you know, Trump's was build a wall and get Mexico to pay for it, right? <laughs> a lot of it is showing up and acknowledging uh, the problem. And the fact is, because ours is based in fact, um, when we talk about how monopoly has crushed uh, local business, we can get there. I used to joke about it and said the answer to our problems is beer. Um, Fifteen years ago, about 96% of all the beer we drank in America came from two beer companies. Uh, now you've seen this explosion of local beer production, and it's completely destroyed big beer. So now they only control 85% of all the beer that we drink in America. But that 11% delta has transformed uh, main streets and small towns across rural Virginia. And so if we were looking at just a 10 or 15% delta for local food production, and the big kahuna is energy. So even if you don't believe in climate change, even if you don't care about clean air and clean water, which of course conservatives do, uh, these are fishing streams, um, even if you didn't care about those things, just the monopoly versus local production alone is a huge aspect of our economic vitality going forward. Justin, I think, is a very forward-looking, uh, visionary thinker. His election was amazing. 28 years ago, uh, I was there when the first African-American got elected, Doug Wilder. I wasn't old enough to vote, but I was knocking doors in high school. Uh, I was really excited to get to vote for Justin, but he was also fearless last night in his acceptance speech uh, to say, we are going to dismantle the school-to-prison pipeline piece by piece. So... Um, <laughs> So I think uh, it's really herring uh, Fairfax North, an amazing ticket. These delegates, it's a whole generation that's come in, and we really believe this could be the wave in 17 uh, that takes us to victory in 2018. So we have to wrap this up. Um, I, I feel like I already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask you it anyway. Uh, a year from now, we're doing this again. Uh, are you feeling good about the way things are going? A lot better than 24 hours ago. Uh, <laughs> You know, eight years ago, uh, this went in reverse. 
I was in Congress, the Tea Party uh, came up, um, and we lost terribly in Virginia. And then that began, that was the precursor to the Tea Party victories that flipped the House in 2010. I believe that's starting in reverse. Someone told me the other day that they thought we would see two to three congressional retirements for every House of Delegates seat we picked up yesterday. We picked up at least 14, uh, maybe more. So hopefully we're going to see some retirements even before we get to 2018. We see amazing candidates running in every district. Um, and I really do think this is going to be, again, not just an election cycle, but an inflection point of who we are uh, as Americans. Um, and as the old saying goes, America never was America to me, but yet I swear it yet will be. Um, I think this is that arc this year if we all step up and do our part. Thank you, Tom. Up next is uh, Michelle and Tamika. So... Let's go. Hi, I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm a columnist at the New York Times, uh, formerly a writer at Slate. And this is Tamika Mallory, who is an advocate and activist and has played a lot of different roles in New York City politics, in, in, in national politics. And you probably know her best as one of the four co-chairs of the Women's March. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's only been a couple of days in the last year that I've felt sort of okay. Um, <laughs> one is one is today after after last night's election, but yeah. one of them was I mean was definitely the day of the women's march and the kind of glow that was left afterwards. Yeah. And so let me just let's talk a little bit about how the women's march came to be. Mm. Um, what was it like for you as you realized a year ago that this was happening that Donald Trump was going to be president? Well, thank you, um, Michelle. You know, first of all, I was on a train um, coming from D.C. I had just, uh, I did an, an interview, I think, on Roland Martin's show. Uh, they had taken over a restaurant in in D.C., and they were talking about the election results, and everyone there just knew that Hillary Clinton was going to win, so people were really in celebration mode. Mm -hmm. uh, but as the evening went on, folks started to feel a little tense, but we were pretty sure it would be okay. It's just, you know, the way it goes. By the time I made it on the train, there was a gentleman who sat behind Carmen Perez, who's my uh, partner, one of the other co-chairs, and I. And um, he was giving the results to everyone on the train, sort of broadcasting in real time what was happening. There were a lot of different types of people on the train, folks who are commentators and otherwise. And as they were listening, as he was giving the results, the train became a depressed station. It was almost like a hospital on the train. <laughs> People were falling out. It was just like some crazy SHIT going on on this train. <laughs> and it was, and, then, and, and the funny thing is that the people of color on the train were almost like in tears. We were looking at each other saying, this is about to be really serious. Um, and when I just remember getting off the train at one o'clock in the morning, there were no real results, but it was clear that something bad in our minds was looming. 
Um, and it was a really, really devastating space. The next day, I was literally laying in my bed in a knot. And because I had been on all types of tours, get out the vote tours at colleges and all these different activities. And to have this be the result was really, really difficult. So I was laying in my bed in a knot and I got a call from a friend of a friend, the telephone game, saying that there was this thing called the Million Women March Mm -hmm. that um, they wanted us to get involved in, Carmen and myself. And Linda. Oh, so wait, I didn't realize that it happened that fast. Yeah, it was. Because it was. I remember, I mean, I remember the Facebook post going around that it was going to be this March. And then it was kind of like, wait, who's actually organizing this March? Exactly. And so, you know, there was, there is a historic March called the Million Women March that was organized by black women mm-hmm. um, 20 years ago. And black Twitter was tearing white women up. Like tearing them up. I don't know if you've ever been the subject of Black Twitter, but it is not a place that you want to get caught in. And so by the time they called us, they said, there's a big problem here. We have this march. It's great. There's over 100,000 people signed up, but we've named it the wrong name and it needs to be fixed. And they called back and said that they changed the name to the Women's March on Washington. They asked whether or not we would get involved. And within, Carmen says 48 hours, so I'd say, you know, somewhere between 48 and 52 hours, we met with a group of people who had never organized anything ever, ever, ever before in their lives Mm -hmm. um, in terms of marches. And they were asking us to get involved. And the one woman, Bob Bland, who was also a co-chair, was days away from having a baby. So I sat there and looked at them and said, this is the craziest thing. (laughs) And by the way, it is very clear that this is what life will look like for at least the next four years. Anything goes. Um, And so we got involved at that point and became the four co-chairs of the Women's March on Washington. And then I remember being in Washington. I was in Washington for the covering the inauguration. And it was, you know, really rough, but I started hearing, I started seeing these news stories about, you know, planes full of women and like trains full of women. And, you know, I mean, and you kind of had this (laughs) sense that like the cavalry was coming. Um, What did you realize? I mean, because I don't think anybody knew how big it was going to be, but when did you guys realize the scope of this thing? Well, there was a moment when we were all sort of sitting together and we, we pretty much were lying to people, telling them that it was only going to be 200,000 folks there because we had applied for a permit and that's like all we could say. So <laughs> we were like hunkered down in the basement of a hotel saying to one another, do not talk about these 300,000 people in addition to the 200,000 that just showed up from nowhere. Don't talk about it. Act like you don't see it. And there were ladies walking around our hotel with the pink hats on. And we were like, oh, my God, this is going to be crazy. We had sound for 250,000 people. So there were at least a million people at the march that didn't hear anything. Um, and But they, were, they, they said that it was the most beautiful day of their lives. So it was amazing. Um, we knew getting closer those last few days that the number had changed. And as you said, when people were unable to get buses, trains, or any type of transportation, last minute folks, it was like, whoa, this is going to be bigger than anything that we could imagine. And it, it's, it's not on us. It had taken on a life of its own. And people were coming. They didn't care who was in charge of the march. They just wanted to be there to be in solidarity with other women and allies. So what have been the challenges of keeping all those people and all that energy um, mobilized and 
activated, you know, when right. the march is over and everyone has to go home and this person is still president. Well, I mean, one, I guess one, right. <laughs> so, I guess one of the things that is very difficult when you're organizing a group of women, everyone has an opinion and the person who's next to you opinion is more important than yours. So um, we've had some challenging times. I mean, just recently for our women's convention, mm-hmm. when Bernie Sanders was in, was introduced or uh, it was told to folks that he was coming, the whole Internet blew up as if we had like Satan coming to the convention. It was crazy. Um, and. You know, the the work that we had to do to explain to people that he was no more important or significant as Maxine Waters, who we confirmed first to be at the conference. And she was our keynote speaker. Um, and after doing that work, we realized that people were really in tune, like they're really listening. And I think that what was really incredible is that 5,000 women, almost 5,000 women packed into one space um, in in the convention hall in Cobo Center in Detroit. And it really felt good to know that we didn't lose it. You know, we were still able to maintain people coming out to be involved and to hear some really, really impactful messaging. And we had a session on confronting white womanhood from Emmett Till um, to Terrence Crutcher. And it was a very, very difficult conversation. The first day that we did the session, I believe was on Friday, there was about 150 people in the room. And because it was such a powerful session, the women had their own little protest against us, the organizers, saying that they wanted it to happen again. We did it the next day and 800 women showed up. So that is that for us, that's the shining light that people are continuing to push and to be involved. And as long as we have that, I mean, even even right after the march, the next thing that we organized was a a march against the NRA. Mm -hmm. And there were people of all ages that showed up to walk 18 miles from the NRA headquarters in Virginia to Washington, D.C. So these are just some of the things, not to mention people showing up at airports for the Muslim ban, people who have never been engaged in civil rights work, social justice work, even politically, um, and to see them continuing to show up has really been a shining light for us. So what's the next stage of kind of mass protest? Mm. I mean, there's part of me that feels like what we need is, you know, some kind of like pink revolution, you know, like the orange revolution in Ukraine where people, you know, go out (laughs) into the mall and refuse to leave until this man gets out of the Oval Office. Um, But what is the next stage? I mean, I think we have to keep pushing, but the work that has to be done now is not about mass mobilization. Mass mobilization is important, and we will continue to do that, but there is work that has to happen in terms of people having conversations with their family members and their friends. Um, You know, we still talk about the idea that 53% of white women who voted in the election uh, voted for Donald Trump, and even when we look at what happened in New Jersey last night, we still see that 52% about that CNN's poll, I don't know how accurate it is now after more counting has been done, but that 52% voted for the Republican candidate. Mm -hmm. Um, And not that people don't have the right to vote for whoever they want, but if we're all looking for more of a progressive agenda, we have to ask ourselves, are we voting with our heads where we know like this is not a good sign or are we voting with our hearts? And if we're voting with our hearts, that's even deeper, that there's something going on within our society where people are really divided. Um, And we have some real work to do. And that's not going to come from having a march or wearing a hat or showing up at a mass mobilization. It's going to come from sitting at your dinner table, having a difficult conversation with your aunt, and maybe not even being invited back to the next Thanksgiving dinner. 
What do you, what do you think was? I mean, aside from the fact that you know you kind of continuously have these heartbreaking numbers of white women voting for terrible men, or I guess in the case of New Jersey, she's terrible woman. woman. Yeah, she's <laughs> a woman. But what what do you take as the lesson of um, the victories last night? Black women rock. That's the first thing. <laughs> If you want to know how to get somewhere, follow black women, because we continue to have 90% and better um, where we are showing up for a candidate that we may not even like. Let's just be clear. 94% of black women voted for Hillary Clinton, not because they liked her. Um, There are a lot of complexities in terms of the relationship between black folks and the Clinton family. Um, And so it's not that we went to the polls excited about a woman or excited about her particularly, but we voted with our conscience. We voted with our heads. We know that in order for our families to be whole and for us not to be in the situation that we're in, we have to make a decision that is not emotional, but that is based upon like facts and what what could happen for our children's children's children if we don't make the right decision today. Um, and so I think that that's one thing that women of color are leading. And that's sort of a good sign mm-hmm. that many of us are beginning to be centered in these conversations more than we've ever been before. And I just hope that we are able not to take it from a defensive point of view, but to lean in and figure out what does that leadership mean and how can we elevate the voices of women of color more so that we are able to provide um, from a marginalized perspective. We're the ones that are most impacted. And so when you listen to us and you give us voice and you give us platforms, um, I think it makes the world a better place. Um, you know, there's a lot of, I've spoken to some um, act, activists, people of color who have said that, you know, you were shocked by this outcome, but we always knew that this was possible in this mm-hmm. country. But has the election and what's happened since there changed your view in any way of kind of how deep the problems in this country are and of, you know, in terms of kind of whether you, whether there's any prospect for regeneration in this country? You know, I think what some meant for bad in terms of, uh, you know, they voted for Donald Trump because they wanted to ensure that, like, their views, whatever they may be, horrible views, um, would be carried out. It may have been, it may have been bad in one way, but in the, another sense, it has actually been good because people are coming together that have never, ever, like they're having conversations, they're working together, they're organizing together, they're having difficult conversations that are painful but necessary. Um, and so let's just be clear, it's not okay that Donald Trump is president of the United States of America. It's not okay at all. It's not okay his, that Jeff Sessions is somehow involved in our criminal justice system, and he is a criminal. Um, it's not okay. And... And I never, ever allow people of color, particularly black women and men, to accept it and say, oh, well, you know, we knew that this could happen and there was nothing more that we can do. We can show up, we can turn out, and we can organize with allies and others who we may have never seen as a friend in the past, but we're all in the same boat together now. So we had just better be in here paddling in the same direction, and that is the direction towards liberation and freedom for all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Ooh, these, these are swiftly. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm Jordan Weissman. I am uh, Slate's chief economics correspondent, and I am here with Rashad Robinson, who is the uh, executive director of Color of Change, which um, for those who haven't signed one of their petitions or donated, um, is really one of the country's premier online civil rights and racial justice organizations. And one of the things that they have proven themselves really, really good at this year is getting corporations to either uh, cut ties with the Trump organization or stop dealing with or stop running ads on troublesome Fox News shows, uh, particularly Bill O'Reilly's. Um, <laughs> you, if your grandparents are no longer being terrified every night by that man, you partly have Rashad to thank. Uh, mm -hmm. So and we're, we're going to talk about that. But, um, you know, first, I just want to kind of ask a broad question, which is you guys have been operating since 2005. You've been, you know, spotlighting racial justice issues, criminal justice issues, the Jenna Six, um, you, you know, making trouble for other Fox News hosts on election night after election night. I'm curious, what were you afraid of, most afraid of, and how did that change the way you guys approach your mission? Well, you know, we went into the election cycle because um, we did a lot of work around uh, voter contact in the election cycle. We concentrated um, our 2016 work on district attorney races, but um, leveraged district attorney races to go up ballot. And so as we were doing voter contact through peer-to-peer -peer text messaging around the country, we were seeing a lot of excitement around uh, district attorney races. In fact, we picked seven races last cycle, really trying to channel the movement energy around criminal justice. And we won five of those races, um, engaging our members to do voter contact work over three thousand volunteers and we didn't see the same type of um excitement around the presidential race around hillary around hillary and so yeah. we were thinking about what happens um the day after before that and we really tried to figure out what does the work for color of change look like uh in a in a world where we don't have a democrat that we're holding accountable that we're thinking very differently and after the election we came together and really tried to figure out what was our strategy going forward uh um, President Obama and even George W. Bush, to a certain extent, are change candidates. Um, and Donald Trump was a change the rules candidate, meaning that the archetypes of how things get done are different. You can't count on the rules happening the same way. Judicial rulings might not be implemented the same way. We may have disagreed with the politics of a housing and urban development secretary, but we knew they knew something about housing <laughs> and urban development. And so changing the rules is a different type of archetype. And so we had to think differently about what an opposition movement looked like. And we spent a lot of time saying we are not going to be directing energy at the Justice Department or HUD and asking them to do certain things. We're not going to be directing our marches at Trump, but directing our marches at folks for whom showing up as a march actually means something to corporations, to media, to allies, and holding them accountable, making sure that enablers pay a price for their relationship with Donald Trump. So that's a an interesting word so what is an enabler to you like what who who is it just like any corporate is it travis kalanick when he shows up and when he showed up and sat on the tech council is absolutely it anybody who deals with anyone who's complicit like what how big is the universe of enablers well the 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 we 
um, had a strategy that we wanted to create total desertion and defection. Those that stood by <laughs> Donald that's, Trump that's needed, to be, needed to be held accountable. And to the extent that um, if you come to our community um, by day and try to have a relationship with us and play with Donald Trump by night, you are going to be held accountable. And we're going to try to find the best way to do that. And so to the extent that... Um, you you know every every enabler is not equal right the republican congress is not the first place we necessarily start with we started with corporations with the recognition that many of them were coming into our communities with diversity projects or ads and then they're sitting on trump's business council and so we launched a campaign right after the business council was um, announced called quit the council and we began with behind the scenes conversations but also getting other organizations behind an effort to really go after Trump's business council and go after CEOs who were sitting there. So I, I want to ask you why um, that project in particular was so important because, or why you felt it was so important because there were definitely some people, especially in the business press, who looked at those councils, looked at the, those, yeah, I mean, you remember those incredibly just awkward photo ops mm-hmm. where Tim Cook looked like he just wanted to bury his head in the sand, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, and like, it didn't seem like they were really doing that much. Why was it so crucial for you to say no corporate America, you can't even show up for the dog and pony show? Well, because the dog and pony show, symbolism is important in our society. And symbols um, show um, where, what the rules are, what the norms of society. You know, um, when I first got to Color of Change about um, six and a half years ago, about six years in, um, I tried to launch a campaign that I could get no progressive organizations to join me. And it was a campaign to go after NBC around the Celebrity Apprentice. And we started to go after that campaign because we were going after Celebrity Apprentice because NBC had given Donald Trump a platform on TV while he was going around the country with his racist rant about President Obama. Um, and so we say... This is outrageous. We're going to go after corporations. Let's build this campaign. And I heard from many progressive organizations, doesn't Color of Change have something better to worry about? This is like really pop culture. Like there are bigger issues. He's a, just ignore him. He's a bozo. He just wants you to go after him. And I think back to the moment that if we could have made it impossible for him to be on TV once a week as a a reputable businessman, you know, making the rules and, and deciding who stayed and who, who left, who was on, who wasn't. Um, if we could have stopped him then, um, sent him off, decided that the rules and norms didn't allow him to have that platform, one could only imagine where we might be today. <laughs> and so, so symbolism is important, and who has a voice and who doesn't have a voice is important. And if, and if a major corporation is going to one day say that they care about our community and have Black History Month ads all over the radio and then go sit next to Trump, um, then we're going to hold them accountable for that. Yeah. So we, I should also say one of the reasons you, you have leverage is because you have about a million members right now, people who have signed your petitions. Yeah, over, yeah about 1.5 million members. Yeah. So, you know. How let, let's use the CEO council yeah. as, as an example, sort of just a case study. How do you leverage that? Oh, and how, how do you leverage those members? How do you, you know, how do you keep it from just being online slacktivism? How do you take that and turn it into real results? So we spend a lot of time first behind the scenes with the corporations. We go back and forth with them. We try to understand what their reasonings are. We give them a chance to pull out behind the scenes. Some corporations 
had conversations and, and, um, Uber actually pulled out before we went deeply public on them, um, the way we had to go on some other corporations. And so we went back and forth with certain corporations and then we go public and we give our members the ability. We tell them a story about what's happening and then we find different ways to make public, whether it's through the online petitions, through phone calls. A lot of the work though we did was actually mobilizing employees at these corporations. We took out, we took out geo-targeted ads where we asked the employees inside of these corporations, particularly black employees, women, young people to speak out and demand their CEO is accountable. And many of the CEOs would say things like, or their folks when we get on the phone, they would say, well, isn't it better that we're at the table? You know, um, if we're not, if you're not on the table, you're on the menu, those type of cliches. <laughs> and I would say like, so were you at the table when the transgender ban came down? Um, were you at the table when the Justice Department started talking about rolling back affirmative action? Were you on the, at the table when Jeff Sessions um, talked about civil asset forfeiture? Because if you were at the table then, um, then you are complicit. And if you are standing next to them and you weren't at the table, then you are also complicit. And so the a lot of these co- companies, it seemed like the, the kind of straw that broke the camel's back was Charlottesville, right? That was when the, the, you know, they started just flee. Mm-hmm. So how, what would you say the difference was in your efforts before and after Charlottesville? How, how important was And what would you say, you know, and, and do you think to some extent they would have just left naturally after that whole disaster? Well, there was a lot of infrastructure laid. You know, we had two big campaigns that after Charlottesville sort of had a lot of life. We had one campaign where we were um, urging credit card companies to stop processing fees on white supremacist sites. And we'd been spending months going back with forth with Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and PayPal. And they would say things like you know, it's the banks, you should go talk to the banks, or we have these policies, we can't do this, and we built out a microsite, and we had been spending time, we had mobilized our members, and the same thing with the Quit the Council campaign. In both of those situations, though, after Charlottesville, um, these companies were still sort of sitting and waiting to see what type of mobilization would happen. And if we had not sort of laid the infrastructure, had the conversations, knew exactly who to re- research, had the ads ready to turn on, um, because we were trying to figure out when the right time. And when Charlottesville happened, we were like, okay, we are done having conversations. We are done with the sort of back and forth opportunity. And we turned, we turned it on. And all of a sudden, for the credit card companies, they no longer told us to go talk to the banks. Suddenly, they could like unilaterally decide they weren't going to process fees on white supremacist sites. And How that it was works. just crazy <laughs> that, you know, like for months it was the banks. And then all of a sudden they could do it because, you know, they don't process ISIS fees either. Right. So, <laughs> so OK, let's let's talk O'Reilly. Um, and I, I want to preface this also by saying this, the, the your campaign against O'Reilly First, wasn't the, the, it wasn't the first time you went after a Fox News host. Yeah. Um, you, you, you in the audience may remember um, back when Glenn Beck uh, said that Obama hated white people and suddenly his advertisers started or uh, resented white people. His advertisers started fleeing the show and he was nudged off Fox News. That was your was guys a, running a campaign. It was a two-year campaign of, you know, yeah. of going after advertiser after advertiser. Yeah. yeah. And so, and then you guys had also been running a campaign previously against O'Reilly. And I think... As an outsider or outside looking at what happened after the New York Times ran its report on sexual harassment and uh, all the payments that Fox had been making for O'Reilly to cover up its tracks, um, a lot of people just sort of saw it as like the natural conclusion of all that. Just, of course, advertisers were going to leave, and of course, he was going to lose his job. But I, talking to you earlier, what I realized is that actually, again, there was 
There was a lot going on behind the scenes, and I want I want you to yeah. tell me about that. What was and what, so a piece of it was the advertisers. You know, Bill O'Reilly represented you know well over twenty percent of the advertising base for Fox News, the primetime advertising base. So he was huge, hugely important. Advertising is important, but in the cable news industry, subscriptions are also important, and he was very important in subscriptions. So we realized that we had to a go after the advertisers and force them to desert. And so once again, we were running geo-targeted ads, asking employees of advertisers. Um, to speak out and engage. Employees have been incredibly important to speaking out. And so it's, it is both the consumer base and people inside of institutions. It was also Fox News employees. And we started running ads directly at Fox News employees. 1-800 number that we, that we set up for um, folks to report sexual harassment inside of Fox. We started running mm-hmm. ads on monster.com for anyone who was um, applying for a job um, <laughs> at Fox. And you could say, here's a 1-800 number because you may be harassed once you go work at Fox News. Um, and... So a lot of folks saw the, the deep coalition work that we were involved in, the protest out in front of Fox News, the um, ads we were taking out, the, the protests, the phone calls, all of that. But underneath it, what we were trying to create was a sense for Fox that it wasn't going away, that, that it wasn't just going to stop, that the um, campaign three months from now, they weren't, the advertisers weren't just going to be able to slip back in and no one was going to be paying attention. And much the way we did the campaign around Glenn Beck, that was a two-year campaign that Every single night, folks were watching Fox News, and when an advertiser had left and decided to go back, we would then mobilize back on that advertiser. It was forcing sort of a new set of rules that we were not going to go away. And so for Fox News, they had to make the choice, um, do we keep this person on air that's not only preventing us from sort of making the market share that we want, but is also disrupting our ability to like do our work every say, single day inside? So do... Companies just kind of know you guys by now. Like, is it just like, here they come? <laughs> well, we we know we know who to reach out to, and they know they have to return our phone calls, and that's very important in this environment. But more than anything, you know, we believe in a carrot and stick approach. We believe in holding up those folks who are doing the right thing. But in this era of um, resistance and opposition in this era where people are finding ways to make good on their participation. Um, we have to make sure that there are no, that there are no sidelines, that those that try to play both sides or stay on the sidelines are actually holding up the status quo. And in the, in five, 10, 15 years from now, when people tell the story about what they did in this moment to stand up and speak out, it's not just about being present. It's about being powerful and it's about changing the rules of engagement. And that's what we're trying to do every single day. Rashad, uh, thank you so much for coming to talk. I'm, uh, I'm Isaac Chotner, a staff writer at Slate, and this is Jelani Cobb, a staff writer at The New Yorker. And uh, also a professor of journalism at uh, Columbia University. So, um, Jelani, we have uh, 15 minutes to tackle the subject of race in America. I think we can do it. We, be, we need eight tops. Uh, so, the first question I wanted to ask you was, you know, Trump has been president for about 10 months now, and I don't think the person he is or his, his feelings on racial issues has surprised anyone given, given the campaign, given the transition. 
But when you look at America racially 10 months into the administration, does anything surprise you? Is anything different than you think um, going in, given the campaign Trump ran? Uh yeah, one thing that surprises me is like the kind of never-ending reservoir of good faith that people have about Donald Trump. <laughs> like they're always first they were the pivots, you know, like like there's always a pivot. There's one to pivot. He's going to change and so on. And I was like, you have NBA forwards who don't pivot that much, you know. <laughs> um, and so there was the idea that this was going to happen. Uh, and and then there are these kinds of things. Even Bob Corker, you know, has come out and been critical of him. The the route that he took to that criticism, we said, oh, he's not really evolving and learning. He's not growing into the role. But Trump, to his credit, never gave them any reason to think that he was going to evolve. <laughs> he was who he said he was. And if they'd been familiar or familiarized themselves with his track record, they would have said, this is not a character that's going to become something other than what he is. Uh, and so while it's good to see that there are people who are beginning to break from the pack and say, uh, we have a real problem here, that problem was apparent from the opening, from the, from the moment he began his campaign referring to Mexicans as rapists. And and just what about where the country is after having this guy as president for 10 months in mm-hmm. terms of racial issues and racial dynamics? Well, I mean, I think it's it's kind of um, obvious. Like we have the parameters of the conversation have expanded such that that white nationalism is actually part of the dialogue now, and so we actually have to countenance what these people who would traditionally have been thought of as fringe, what they think and what their uh, beliefs are and what their uh, political agenda is. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, too. A woman said to me um, the morning after the election, uh, so a year ago minus a day, and I was on a flight coming from North Carolina uh, where I had been writing about voter suppression there. And there were two women sitting behind me, uh, and they were bawling, just sobbing. And they're both uh, white women in maybe their 40s. I get into a conversation with them, and you know, one of them. It turns out that both of them have children with developmental disabilities. They didn't know each other, uh, but then they just got into a conversation and realized that they were both terrified at what kind of bullying had been legitimized by the fact that someone had been able to ridicule a reporter with a disability and still be elected president of the United States. And uh, in the course of our conversation, she said. One of the things that has remained one of the most germane criticisms, I think, of, of, or explanations for the Trump phenomenon. He's, and she said, I'm a teacher and this is fundamentally a crisis of education. And I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, we have underfunded education for decades and we now have a population that doesn't understand a threat to democracy when they see it. Well, let me just follow up on that since you are a professor of journalism as well mm-hmm. as a, as well as a writer as well as a journalist, mm-hmm. which is you say that you know white nationalism is now part of the political conversation mm-hmm. it's been it's been normalized in some way because it has a home in one of our two political parties and it mm-hmm. has a home in the White House mm-hmm. and I guess my question for you is how you think the press should deal with that um, every time someone like Richard Spencer uh, who I'm sure people here know who he is appears on TV, there's kind of this debate. Should we be giving people like this? He's the guy that gets punched in his face a lot. (laughs) 
there's a debate about, you know, should he be interviewed? Should we be talking about him? Should we be listening to this guy? And I, I'm wondering how you think journalists should deal with this because it is a reality at the same time you are giving airtime and in a way normalizing this really toxic set of beliefs. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there's a responsible and an irresponsible way of doing it. And I think that what's we, what we've seen is, uh, for a large part, been the more, the more irresponsible side of it. Uh, and even that just kind of figures like uh, like Spencer. But even if you saw last weekend when Brian Stelter had Kellyanne Conway on, and he announced that she was going to be a guest, and Twitter lost its mind. <laughs> You know, raising a question of why do you give a forum to someone who is going to give, you know, essentially disinformation to the public. Uh, and I think, it, you know, when you look at how, um, you know, the media engaged with, with Joseph McCarthy, who is the, I think, the closest political analog to, to Donald Trump, uh, a great deal of it early on was irresponsible, just kind of printing what he said or realizing that even people who knew that he was, uh, you know, a serial liar, uh, would nonetheless recognize that they were selling papers if they put them on the the cover um, of their their issue. If they put a quote from him, people would come out and buy it. But you can also say that televising the Army McCarthy hearings uh, was part of what brought McCarthy down. That the media played a role in exposing him for exactly what he was. And I think that that kind of media coverage is crucial and important. We haven't seen enough of it. And we've seen, even CJR, um, Columbia Journalism Review did an interesting, um, piece not long ago about whether or not you should call Trump a liar, whether or not you should call him racist, uh, and whether, you know, press should say that. And I think that there has to be a high bar for those things. Uh, but he, through diligent effort, <laughs> and, you remember in elementary school where teachers say, we really want you to apply yourself. You know, he has earned, he's met that bar, I think. So let, let me ask you this then. Um, when you think about racial issues in America going forward, we've, we've obviously had a country with many racial problems mm -hmm. for a very long time. What we haven't had in recent history is a country, we have a two-party system where one party is really devoted to a sort of white nationalist mm -hmm. philosophy. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what effect you think over time, I know everybody's feeling good today or people in this hall are feeling good today about the election and Ed Gillespie ran this very racially charged campaign that ended up coming, coming up short. But what does it mean to have a party that's going to take this on? Republicans have always used racially charged mm -hmm. ads, even some Democrats have, but what does it mean to, that it's really going to have a home in one of the two political parties for, for American racism? Yeah, I mean, so one, it's like they've not, we've not had an explicitly white nationalist party, you know, but for everyone who's behaving as if they're, they're stunned by Charlottesville, uh, these people were going back to their districts and talking to people and they were getting feedback from their constituents. They knew that this thing was out there, that it was animate, that it was growing. They just thought that they could always keep it under control. Uh, and then it kind of broke away from the shackles and became something they couldn't control. And now it controls them. And looking at this, you're going, um, you know, what's the next reasonable um, expectation for this, like where did, where would a group like this go from here? Especially given the fact that demographically, the causes of their concern are becoming more prominent, more prevalent. You know, the country is becoming more brown, not more white. Uh, that the economic issues, especially the uh, 
uh, evisceration um, of the uh, industrial sector in this country, uh, that is beginning more, becoming more pronounced. And uh, the issues around automation are going to replace the issues of uh, exporting jobs and so on. We, and this is like, I hate to kind of break down the high that everyone's on, we are looking at a really long-term trend. This is something that we're going to have to, I don't think that it's something that can't be defeated, but we should not take any uh, um, comfort in the idea that it's somehow or another limited to Trump. Uh, even if Mueller came up with uh, the definitive dossier, you know, that we have the actual P-tape. <laughs> Um, and we have, uh, you know, don't Trump. look at me. You... <laughs> uh, that would just be, I, I swear I would write that story. I would just like, just please let me write the P tape story. Um, but no matter what Robert Mueller came up with, we should not, uh, comfort ourselves with the illusion that the, uh, phenomenon of Trumpism is entirely dependent upon Trump. The circumstances that he saw and that he seized upon will still continue to exist. You know, just to bring this to Obama for a second, I think there was a sense when Obama was elected that um, demographics were going in the Democrats' favor, that mm -hmm. the country was changing, you know, that we'd sort of passed out of this time. When you, when, which obviously turned out to be wrong and was probably mm -hmm. way overly simplified at the time. When you think back to Obama's election now and what it meant for the country, w what in hindsight, 10 months into the Trump administration, how do you look at it differently? Um, one, I think it's a lot easier to be um, forgiving of Obama because you recognize what came after him. Um, and you're saying that this person, when we think about this, I'm not sure if it's a greater honor to be elected president than it is a disrespect to be succeeded by the man who forced you to show your birth certificate to prove you were a citizen. And in the balance of those two things, I'm not sure. Um, and so as o Obama, as somebody who's kind of a congenital optimist about race, I think largely because he grew up in Hawaii um, with with white grandparents. Uh, but for, I think, African-Americans at large who are probably more skeptical to pessimistic about this, it really is painful to see that optimism foiled in a particular way. Uh, and to say, like, this person who actually gave us this hope and faith that things could actually radically be different. And I'm not abandoning that. I'm not saying that it was all for naught. But for us to recognize that we're talking about net progress, not absolute progress, that we hope that after whatever this debacle is, is over, that there will be some element of what Obama represented that still gives us a net positive. When you hear Obama speak today, I mean, he's not speaking that often or releasing, you know, Twitter statements mm -hmm, or Facebook mm -hmm. statements and they they kind of come they come packaged the way his words always come packaged. Mm -hmm. They're optimistic, they're mm -hmm. classy, you know, whatever word you want to use. When when I read them sometimes, it doesn't it, it doesn't feel quite right and I don't know mm -hmm. exactly why that is, but it it somehow feels like with the time we're living in, it, it somehow feels too optimistic to me or just not the right tone. Do you ever feel that way or do you feel differently? I felt that way during his presidency. 
you know, what we were kind of saying, but bear in mind, I was, um, I always say I'm a mixed race. I was raised by an Alabama Negro and a Georgia Negro. Um, <laughs> and so, but what they taught me about the South was like the very hard-edged realism of race, like the reason both of them had fled the South. And there were ugly biographical stories that connected to the ugly historical narratives that we know. And that was what I um, grew up with. And so I would hear Obama and say, I'm sorry, but I don't think you're entirely cognizant of what these people will do to stop you. Um, and I felt bad about that because it's kind of pessimistic or at least skeptical but as time went on, you started saying, well, you know, these are the things that, that happen as a result of this. And so as a result of the kind of when black people stake a claim for equality in America, there's always a counterclaim, um, always. And we were maybe naive to think that there wouldn't be a kind of equal and opposite push. Do you think then, I mean, you said that you think Obama's thinking on this in some sense comes from his background growing mm-hmm. up in Hawaii, white grandparents. Mm-hmm. So, so do you think that the the sort of the kind of take he had on these issues was determined by that, or do you think that it was also the way that he felt that he had to what he had to say to succeed politically that he had to adopt? Yeah, I think he actually, I think he actually believed that when you talked about his rationale for running, he said that um, you know he wanted it to be you know established for young people of color that they could do anything that they wanted in life. Uh, and when he stood up and said in 2004, there's not a black America or a white America, there's the United States of America, that was a lie. That was a damn lie. There was a black America, there was a white America, there was a Latino America, there was a, a gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender America, there was uh, a, a poor America, there was an overly incarcerated America, and then there was an America that was represented by over um, excessive access to all resources in overclass and that those realities like you can't paper over them because they're actually part of the the political terrain that we're operating in but people in, in the united states also have a kind of aspirational ideal of ourselves that we want to think of ourselves as better than our history and he tapped into that powerfully and um, effectively and at the end of the day maybe um, that renegade hope that he offered us maybe that kind of um, faith, uh, impermeable faith uh, and the possibility of a better tomorrow, maybe that's what we fall back upon to sustain ourselves in the midst of what we're in now. Uh, well, I think we got everyone depressed again, so that's good. Um, Thank you. I, uh, I'm really good at that, so if you're ever feeling good, just give me a call. I'll mess up your day. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to my colleague, Dahlia Lithwick, but uh, let, thank you, Jelani Cobb. Thank you. the great joy of introducing you, I'm sure you've already uh, fallen in love with in the four seconds, but uh, to Becca Heller. Uh, Becca is, in my view, uh, truly the face of, you know, Michelle talked about one iconic resistance moment, which was the, the Women's March. For me, 
as a, as a wonk, the other iconic moment, maybe iconic year, uh, was that what I call the airport revolution was, uh, January 27th when every lawyer in America, you know, people who like never bathe or sleep or do anything interesting found their way to an airport with their laptop and just became heroes. And anyone who could make a, 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 Bunch of nerds into heroes uh, is my hero. No, nerds so- are the new hero. We've not been paying any attention to pop culture for the last like ten years. That's true. That's Can true. Hear me? Do I no, need to move know? it. Move it closer. Can you? Hear I me? said something hilarious, but she did. you missed it. She totally. She totally crushed that. Um, Don't worry so, about it. So. So, uh, Becca is uh, the founder of the International Refugee Assistance... Co-founder. Co-founder, sorry. Yep. No, uh, he'll get mad. He'll get mad. He and, does get mad. Yeah. And he's scary. He's another lawyer. He doesn't um, scare me. And she's a graduate of Dartmouth and Yale Law School and has, uh, believe it or not, worked on refugee issues even before uh, January 27th. Uh, but she really, I think, in my view, uh, triggered an extraordinary... Uh, iconic American moment in the resistance uh, by standing up to the travel ban immediately, nimbly, passionately, uh, and in the courts. And so uh, it is just a thrill, Becca, uh, to have you here with us to close this program out. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. I heard you guys clapping at everything. This is going to be so easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you. And, and you have a sense of irony. Um, and one thing you should know is, like, uh, Becca, in addition to her many other skills, is slightly famous for her potty mouth. And my, my kids are in the audience. So when I go earmuffs, um, you'll cover your ears. Okay. So, Becca, I, I, I want to start with um, this question that it seemed at the moment that it was happening, when I go back to the night of the first travel ban and and folks showing up at the airports and people protesting in that amazing moment where people were actually chanting, let the lawyers in. Uh, not not something we heard a lot, uh, even in popular culture. Uh, you, usually That it's... happened to me at prom, actually. <laughs> let what, the lawyers. I've been, I, this is all me trying to make up for high school. And it's, it's super working right now. Uh, so, so we have this extraordinary moment that looks as though it is completely completely spontaneous. It looks as though people were like me looking, you know, looking at cat videos on on Facebook and suddenly you're seeing people When the cat starts speaking to you and saying let the lawyers in, you've been watching <laughs> exactly. too many cat videos That's on a Facebook. High moment. Yeah. So so suddenly people are showing up and they're, you know, getting into cabs and going to airports and standing around baggage claim. Was it as completely spontaneous as we were led to believe? I mean, what's the non-egomaniacal way to answer that? Like, no, we fucking planned it. There like, you go. Earmuffs. Earmuffs. <laughs> uh, I mean, tell we, me, tell so, me what it was. Tell me what you did. What did we? I don't know. Egomaniacally. Uh, it's. I didn't sleep for four days. It's the longest. I think you're legally insane after three. Um, so Trump was inaugurated on January 20th. He took the weekend off to play golf because getting inaugurated is real tiring. Uh, the Women's March happened. You can't talk about the airport weekend without talking about the Women's March, which I think really woke everyone. The New York Times still puts woke in quotes, which I would, I, my plea is that they stop doing that. It's a real word. Um, and then, the, you know, of the, of the 
multitude of fun executive orders that the president has promised us, you know, which one's coming first, and it leaks on Monday that it's going to be the travel ban. So my organization represents predominantly refugees from Middle Eastern countries, and we called everyone with a valid visa, and we said, just get on a plane. The doors to the U.S. are closing. Get on a plane. And um, every day that week, we thought the order might come that day, and on Wednesday, we had a transgender client who was landing at LAX. Um, and I always get nervous when our transgender clients travel because their identity documents don't match their identity. And usually you worry about that when they're like exiting Saudi Arabia, not when they're entering Los Angeles. Um, but we've reached, you know, Saudi Arabia level proportions of something in our government. Um, earmuffs yep. said something. That was good, right? You're good. Um, and so we were worried that they were going to look for any excuse to detain her should the executive order come down while she was in the air. So we had a lawyer go and just kick it in the lobby of LAX, you know, just in case. Um, and it didn't come down that day. And, and that night I was, I was G chatting because that's what the sort of young people, but not super young people do. <laughs> um, I found out with my, you guys are so easy. My God. <laughs> it's great. Like, I'm the funniest person ever. You're, you're um, killing it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Bada bing. Uh, I was G-chatting with my policy director, and she was like, oh, it's a good thing that the the executive order didn't come down today. And I was, let, we'll call her, the, the transgender woman, we'll call her Katya. And I was like, oh, because Katya made it in. And Betsy was like, yeah, and the 50 other refugees on that plane, because they're scheduled to travel in groups. And I had this, like, earmuffs, holy shit moment of like at any given time this thing is going to come down there's going to be thousands of people in the air who had legal permission to enter the u.s when they took off and then are going to land as undocumented immigrants and no one knows what the hell is going to happen to them we better try to get a bunch of lawyers waiting for them at all the airports um so the way our organization works is that we organize, you know, thousands of lawyers and law students to represent refugees. So we had this nice, like, built-in network, and we emailed everyone, and we made a Google form, and within 45 minutes of the email going out, uh, like, 1,600 people had signed up, and the form had crashed. Right. Um, right. And at the, at the end of the day, I think it was like 8,100 people who had registered with us. So you figure the actual number. Well, our lawyers are pretty good at registering for stuff. So maybe the actual number is, in fact, 8,100. But a, a lot of people. And, and they, they all, you sort of get them to the airport and they know what to do already? Or we, I mean, we made templates. So, okay, there's something called the writ of habeas corpus, um, which I... Because it's not a program unless there's been Latin. So now we... Okay. Yeah, well, I mostly just, like, I think it's not the law unless it's in Latin so that it alienates you from accessing what your really important rights are by putting it in a dialect that no one speaks anymore. But that is a topic maybe for another, you know, <laughs> protecting the sanctity of the guild so that we can charge you your left arm to not be put in jail without a trial is what we're talking about. So the, the writ of habeas corpus, which is, in fact, charging you your left arm to not go to jail without a trial, it translates to bring forth the body. Uh, and it is the thing in the Constitution that says, we cannot throw you in a black hole without giving you access to a judge. It's what gives people some modicum of due process at Gitmo, and it's what says you can't turn airports into black sites um, for anyone arriving who happens to hold a passport from one of these seven predominantly conveniently Muslim countries. Um, who might land at a U.S. airport and be unlucky enough to land at some point between 4.30 p.m. on January 27th when the travel ban comes down and 28 hours later at 8.30 p.m. on the 28th when we were on a nationwide injunction saying that it was illegal. 
And it turned out, we found out in retrospect, that they had detained 2,100 people. Right, right. So, so Becca, you know, I think that the, the, the problem here is that each and every day, horrible and hideous things happen to refugees, but we're not running to the airports. If with I were our three left. people right now, one of me would do this. Yeah, I know. And one this I know. And one this. I mean, and I'm doing this. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think that it, it, this problem feels to us because we like not t- tidy narratives. Yay, we won. Uh, but of course, we've got a travel ban 2.0 and a 3.0. We have and, a 4.0, actually. Yeah, we, no one know, noticed that that happened last Well, week. that's, I, I mean, I guess that's my, my question to you is that there was this massive, spectacular performance of national outrage, and it was beautiful and touching, but it's so bad out there to be a refugee in America. Things have not gotten better. It's way We're, worse to be a refugee out of America, so, so, so which talk is why about, we should keep letting them in, why, by well, the way. We'll get there. We'll okay. get there. But talk about talk about what we do about the fact that you're trying to, you know, this is like a Snapchat travel ban. Like we just, there's the next one, there's the next one. That's what the young people are actually using. That's what my, yeah. Mine but, was a Google chat travel ban. <laughs> so talk about. What talk, do we do? Talk about, yeah. I mean, you have to stay ahead of not just, uh, you know, the litigation, but the fact that they just can keep bringing out a new travel ban or signing executive orders and people are bored. Um, I'm not bored. So I would recommend getting involved if you're bored. Um, coming to this seems like a good start. Thank you. Yeah, for buying tickets to something called the People versus Donald Trump. Uh, but then you should do other stuff, too, um, besides sit and listen to me, you know, try to get out of high school by, like, pretending to be funny in front of all of you. I mean, I think the main thing – so, like, two main things. One – is that I think with refugees in particular, it's easy to get overwhelmed by kind of the magnitude of the problem, right? Everyone likes to say there are more refugees than at any time since World War II. It's like 65 million displaced people and 20 million are refugees. And you can look at that and be like, oh my God, like what am I ever going to do about that? You know, on the flip side, I would argue that like 7.5 billion people are affected by racism and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything about it. Um, or that every single one of those refugees doesn't have like a name and a mother and a desire to have a safe place to call home. So number one is like when you're looking at a really large scale problem and thinking, what can I do? The the answer to that doesn't need to be solving the entire problem. It can be solving a very teeny tiny part of it, maybe just for like one person. And the other thing is that like your thing doesn't have to be refugees. So um, I'm a lawyer in case that wasn't clear from all the lawyer jokes we Habeas made. Habeas corpus. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I forgot it. I did through in Latin just you, in case people were worried. You dropped that. Yeah. Um, oh, I dream in Latin. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, I've been doing refugee work since since before it was hot, uh, which I would I would ballpark as July of 2015 when the body of Ilan Kurdi washed up into Europe and people were like, oh shit, were there Syrian refugees? We had no idea. Um, Because you need like the body of a dead child to make you do something about stuff. And and Ilan Kurdi and the Women's March and Airport Weekend are, those are isolated events, right? If they weren't, they wouldn't have gotten so much attention. Like, by definition, we can't repeat that. Like, our comms director was asking me, you know, for the anniversary of Airport Weekend, should we ask everyone to go back to the airport? And <laughs> What, just to, like, shop at the gift no, store? Just, like, like to, uh, in a show of solidarity for something. I was like, no one's going to the airport in January. Like, I can't believe people went last year, and this time there's no one locked inside. But I think you... Like, you pick your thing, 
right? Like to me, when Jeff Sessions was nominated for attorney general, I was like, this is the worst thing that had ever happened. And then I was like, refugees, right? Like you, I spent like a lot of psychoanalytical, unquality time with myself after November, just being like, the next four years are going to be really earmuffs hard. Like you, like you have to stay focused. Your thing is refugees. Here are the tools you have to work with. Like, what can you do? And I think, when people ask me, like, what can I do? I'm just like, figure out what drives you and don't fucking get distracted. Like, this administration is so good at, like, dangling shiny objects in front of you. Like, like we didn't lose a big election in Virginia yesterday. The first lady wore a see-through dress, right? Like, we were talking about that backstage, you know? Last, two weeks ago, there was an executive order that banned 70% of Muslim refugees from coming into the country, and no one reported it, but for four days in a row, there was front-page coverage of Harvey Weinstein sexually assaulting actresses, and that's not to say that sexual assault isn't newsworthy, but I just think that if the takedown of a powerful man is going to dominate four days of the news cycle, I would really like it to be post-impeachment vote. So... <laughs> So I just think you need to like pick your thing and then figure out how you want to engage. Do you want to give money? Do you want to write stuff? Do you want to call your legislature? Whatever it is that you like to do, you're, there's a need for your skill. Just like don't sit there. Like pick your thing and pick your skill and don't let them distract you from continuing to get up every day and resist. Um, I think... One one of the things that Becca and I were talking about uh, in the green room is that we keep waiting for someone to tell us what to do and, you know, find our lane for us. And I think that part of what we were trying to do this evening was to have a whole bunch of people uh, inspire you to also see in yourself, oh, wait. I found my lane, but also that I could do something extraordinary, too. Uh, and so I really want to uh, thank Becca, thank all of you for coming out. We really mean it. We want all 450 of you uh, to come to the Art Bar on 8th Avenue and get completely drunk uh, with us and these extraordinary people. Uh, thank you all so much for coming out. Thank you to Becca Heller. Have a good night.